0: Okay, well, good to be here this morning. Uh, We're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. And Jim's taking a bit of a break this morning because he's up in the pulpit back in Romans uh, later on this morning. So we wanted to make sure he's not having a double dip. So that would be a little confusing, I think, trying to do one and then the other. Um, But we're glad to be here as always. I was told by Jim that you paused partway through Romans chapter 9. I think specifically the note I wrote down was somewhere near the middle where he starts talking about Pharaoh. So that's what I wrote down, and that's where we're going to start today. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Romans 9, that's where we're going to start today. Uh, Can anyone give me a bit of a, either a recap or give me some highlights or things that we noticed in the beginning of Romans chapter 9? And if no one says anything, it's going to have to go to Jim. So anyone else wants to jump in, they can feel free to. Yeah. So coming out of Romans eight, where we have this discussion of sonship and adoption, and then into nine, where Paul is really being uh, focusing here on the nation of Israel and and what their role is going to be and what their place is. Anything else? Oh, thanks, Marty. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. As so more people come in. <laughs> yeah i mean he gives examples in the beginning of romans chapter 9 giving examples of god's promise and how god's promise was worked out in the different uh the patriarchal families how a covenant was made with abraham but that didn't include every one of abraham's descendants but it went through isaac specifically and then how the promise continued and and how god was uh you know orchestrated the way that he willed it Um, through Jacob, not Esau, and how that line moved forward and the promise continued in there. And then as we come to sort of near the midpoint of Romans chapter 9, he gives another example. So starting, I think, we'll start at verse 14 is where we're going to start today. It says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. So he's been giving an example he talks about abraham and he says it wasn't injustice that the promise only went with isaac and not with ishmael and then he talks about jacob and esau he says it wasn't injustice that it went through jacob's line and not through esau's god we would not say he says here we would not say that god is unjust because he keeps his promises in a specific way or because he follows a specific will or path of his own um, the way that Paul kind of phrases this, this question here, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God. It's, it's phrased as sort of a, a question that, that gives the answer in the question. He's not suggesting that God is unjust, but saying, let us never say that. Let us never look at how God chooses to orchestrate things and suggest that we think it's unjust because we somehow think that we're smarter than God and that we somehow understand it better than God and in this section Paul switches a little bit in his tone to sort of a diatribal kind of writing style where he's almost arguing with an imaginary opponent right he's bringing up questions a lot of questions here and asking them assuming the answers so he's not looking for actual answers but it's kind of more this rhetorical style of asking questions that beg their own answers So what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, so here's another example. We've gone Abraham, we've gone Isaac, we've gone Jacob. Here's another example. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy. And I will show compassion to whoever I show compassion. This is a quote from the book of Exodus, uh, coming from chapter 9. In the midst of, um, oh sorry, that's a little bit further on. This is, uh, sorry, giving the example here of the fact that there are many times through Israel's history, particularly when they were with Moses wandering in the wilderness, when God showed judgment on them, right? Can we think of some examples of that? When the Israelites were following Moses wandering in the wilderness and God showed judgment on them? Sure, they complained about food. Yeah, there was judgment then. Well, when Moses came down the, the mountain and they were worshipping a golden, a golden calf, a statue, an idol, there was judgment and punishment then. Yeah. Snakes. Yeah, there was some stuff going on with snakes. And then Moses, that was part of how God chose to judge them. There was times when they complained about how long it had been. And then further on, when the tabernacle had been developed, there was times where the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant were disrespected and not um, the, the rules were not followed. But interestingly enough, in all of those occasions, God could have and would have been justified in wiping out all of Israel. Could he not? He's God. They disobeyed. They broke covenant. And yet he didn't. He judged a portion. There was times when the ground opened up. And swallowed them alive. There was times when snakes came out. There was times when they just died on the spot. There was plenty of ways that God could have wiped them all out. But he chose to show mercy. And that's what Paul is reminding here. When the, the Israelites followed Moses in the desert. He chose to have mercy on who he'd have mercy. And compassion on who he'd have compassion. And we might, might not understand why certain people were judged and others weren't. And why certain people got off and uh, free and from the judgment and others didn't. But that's kind of the point, is it's God's place to judge and it's God's place to show mercy and compassion if he wants to show mercy and compassion. What's kind of interesting at this point is a lot of Paul's narrative or discussion up to this point, rather, has focused on God's grace. And this is, I believe, the first time in Romans that he specifically mentions the idea of mercy. Do we know what the difference is between grace and mercy? Because I think those can be two terms that we use in the church a lot. Um, or in Christian culture, that sometimes we we use interchangeably, and they're definitely connected. But uh, what is the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is freely given. Okay. And mercy is being forgiven. Yeah, that's right on the right track, Tamara. The way that I've kind of heard it put once before is that um, grace is being given something you don't deserve. And mercy is being forgiven for something that you do deserve. So we deserve punishment, but because of God's mercy, we are forgiven. And grace is the thing that says we don't deserve eternal life or salvation, but God freely gives it to us anyways. And so Paul has been really hammering home grace up to this point, because obviously that's a very important theme in understanding salvation. You know, Romans has been talking about salvation a lot. And grace is a key theme, but mercy is important, too, that as he comes into this section talking about God's justice, we need to understand that all of us are deserving of punishment. All of the Israelites were deserving of punishment, and all of us are, too, as sinful people. And it's because of God's mercy that he chooses to allow some to be forgiven. In fact, any who would believe in Christ can be forgiven because of his mercy and so that's going to be an important kind of theme as we continue in this next section of romans 9 verse 16 so then it does not depend on the person who wants it nor the one who runs but on god who has mercy for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very reason i raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth it's pointing to the fact that, it, again, it's truly up to God to decide. We don't have the power to decide if God is going to be merciful to us or not. That is purely by the work of God, through the work of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's up to God to decide. And here he makes this reference to Pharaoh, and that's the uh, passage that I was connected to earlier, I meant to, uh, in Exodus chapter 9, which is in the midst of the plagues. Now, what could be the connection here? Why would Paul bring up Pharaoh? What is interesting or unique about Pharaoh? How does Pharaoh connect to this idea of God's judgment, or God's mercy, or God's justice? Perhaps
1: Pharaoh chose to not let them go, and then later on, God hardened his
0: heart. Yes, so Pharaoh is a very interesting character because we have this interesting passage in Exodus where it talks about God hardening his heart and. Mm-hmm. Many people over the years have brought that up as a, um, an example or trying to be an argument, rather, of, well, how can God be good if he hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, what do we think? How does Pharaoh and his situation play into this um, discussion on mercy and God's justice?
2: Matter what happened, I am not going to let the people go. So it's like it was his choice. Like like God didn't physically just say, "I'm going to harden your heart." He he never believed it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right with um, that. Exodus nine verse seven talks about Pharaoh being unyielding because of his heart, and then and again, chapter Exodus nine verse 12, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I remember being in a study under Bob Agnew and all the different plagues were really addressed to the many different gods that Egypt worshipped. So God was through these these um, hardships was identifying he's God of all. Mm. So it's it's, it's an interesting fact of how um, Develops because then it's followed by, I think, the locust and then, oh,
0: yeah, hail. It just keeps going until eventually the death the of death all the, the firstborn.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's only three more plagues that
3: follow when God heard the I think I right.
1: mm-hmm. so
3: that. So, look at it from that perspective. The, the plagues, which on the surface seem to be unmerciful, are really acts of mercy because uh, uh, God is giving opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, uh, and uh, each one is to be viewed as a, a wake-up call, so uh, God is showing mercy to Pharaoh, and, and uh, it was Pharaoh who hardened his heart first, and then, then finally God has an act, an act of judgment of heart Pharaoh's heart.
0: That's exactly right, Jim, yeah. We read in Exodus that Pharaoh was the one, as was said you know, by Tamara and, and by Rose, that Pharaoh was the one making an intentional choice. He hardened his heart towards God, and he was given every opportunity, we might say, through these plagues, which were designed to, to show God's power, but also to, as you say, Jim, offer a merciful opportunity for repentance. And yet his response to each one of those was to harden his heart again until the point that God himself decided to step in and continue to harden his heart. We might say that God allowed Pharaoh to live through more for a more victorious glory in the end. That because more kept happening, God's glory was shown even more. God's purpose is greater than our own. Because sometimes we might look at this story and this narrative and we might ask the question, well, why didn't God just immediately bring judgment on Pharaoh? right the moment that Moses showed up and Pharaoh has been a terrible guy he's been treating the Israelites terribly horribly and Moses says let my people go according to God let the people go and Pharaoh said no why didn't God just intervene right there and immediately pass judgment on Pharaoh kill him let the people be free but instead we go through this plague and that plague and in the midst of all of it Israelites are still suffering right they're still in slavery they're still being tortured and punished and they're in the midst of slavery until this final culminating event where the firstborn are all killed and eventually the Israelites are released. And looking at that from our perspective, we might ask, well, why not just let them go immediately? Why did God, if God is all powerful, which he is, why did he not bring judgment on Pharaoh immediately and let the people go so they didn't have to suffer all that extra time? But
2: it's but the same with, you can just imagine if we did wrong and God just said, you know what, that's enough, I'm striking you dead. So we have a merciful God. So he's giving you the chance to repent, to come to it. So I guess he was offering Pharaoh the same opportunity. But, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I think that's right. Well, if we're going to ask that question, well, then what's to stop God from striking us dead when we sin? What's to stop God from saying, okay, that's enough, no chance for you? Absolutely, you're right. And because he continued to let it go on and on and on, we have all these plagues. We have the death of the firstborn, which was an incredibly relevant and important miraculous or supernatural event that happened that people in the entire surrounding neighboring nations talked about for generations, right? When the people were finally set free, it pointed to God's power and God's glory, that they had heard about what God had done to the Egyptians because of Pharaoh's hard heart. So Pharaoh started the process by, in himself, rejecting God, and it was him who hardened his heart over and over, despite opportunity, and then eventually God hardened his heart so that he, at that point, would continue to not let them go so God's glory could be more on display. And you're right, Rose, that does point to the fact that God is, in fact, a merciful God because he gave him chance after chance, and, too, he gives us chance after chance after chance. But I just think it's a really interesting thought experiment to think about that and to come to that conclusion and say clearly god had a plan when it came to pharaoh right god had a plan his will was done and his glory was put on display for all in the surrounding world to see i think for me it's a lot harder when i'm the one in the israelites position or something like that perhaps when i'm in a position of suffering or i'm in a position of struggle and even if God eventually brings me out someday, it's still easy at times to look back and say, why didn't he bring me out of that sooner? Why did he leave me suffering? If he was always going to judge Pharaoh, why did he leave them suffering kind of thing? And I think for me, sometimes, if I'm being honest, I wrestle with that myself when I'm in times of difficulty. Well, God, if you could help me out of this, why wouldn't you just take me out of it? <laughs> but would you
2: appreciate the things that he has brought you through?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and this is me being just admitting my own faults because at the end of the day, you're right, Rose, would I appreciate fully what God has done? We can't appreciate God's light unless we know some darkness, some might say, unless we know the suffering, we don't know the joy. We don't know what God is trying to accomplish. That is the point of the story in many ways, that God's will is so beyond our own that so many times it's easy for us to think that we know what's best that we know what we need. That we know what God ought to do. And yet Paul is kind of reminding here, it's up to God to show mercy to who he'll show mercy to.
1: I still find it's amazing, though, with each of these plagues, God was also demonstrating to the Egyptians mm-hmm. that he's the one and only God. Like the first plague of the blood, of, of blood they were it was in the Nile. And there was the Nile God. That the Egyptians worship. Yes. One after another, and they all represent the, the primary gods that the Egyptians worship. So also, they're now learning that this. Oh yeah. That God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Moses. Yes. Is. Supreme.
0: It's not so different in mind to um, you know Elijah up on the mountain top, you know, against the the prophets of Baal, right? And he's just sitting there like just waiting, kind of thing, and. And God's power is put display, on display directly against those that they worship. And, and they're able to see exactly who it is that has power. Absolutely. Let's continue. Um, so we have this example of Pharaoh. Verse 18. So then again, he makes this kind of closing statement on that, that paragraph or that sentence. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So. Um, Again, as we say, Pharaoh was given over to the evil that was in his own heart already. Um, Pharaoh did not have his heart hardened just because God wanted to harden someone's heart, that God chose him as a random person to punish, but rather because of the hardness he already had there. One author I read said, uh, put it this way, that God maintains people in the same state of sin uh, that already characterizes them if he chooses to harden someone that it is not God taking a good person and making them bad, but it's taking a person who is characterized by sin, and if they choose to continue denying and rejecting God, he allows them to remain in the same sin that that characterizes them. Uh, That is what this process of hardening hearts is. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted? his will and this is the big question of the chapter then i think or a big question we might say because if it's god who gets to decide who receives mercy and who doesn't if it's god that can decide whose heart is hardened and whose is not then how can god blame us one might say as though again paul is having this imaginary argument imagine you're talking to someone and trying to explain the gospel to them explain a good god they might respond and say well how can god condemn people to hell If it's him that's in control anyways. You say that God's in control. You say God's sovereign. You say that God's in charge of who receives mercy and who doesn't. Well, then how can you believe that God is good if he condemns people to hell? I'm sure some of you may have heard someone argue with that point before. So what do we think? It basically
1: comes back to free
2: will. You make the choice, you like somebody decides, you know what, with all the warning, I'm still going to drink and drive. So the choice is yours. So if you choose to um, ignore God or still live in sin and God, you know, you're punished. It's, I think it's easier for humans to blame God than the devil. <laughs> of course. <laughs> sure.
0: What else? What else do we think? If it's all just about God and God's will, and as Paul says here, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? How can he still condemn?
3: He sees the person's heart. He knows that he's not gonna change. So mm-hmm. that's the end. Yeah.
0: It's because God's will is beyond us. (laughs) I mean, it's not necessarily the answer we like because we're humans and we want to know all the answers and we want to understand it all. But it's because God is beyond us. And he is the creator and it's up to him to decide what he wants to do. And you're right, Rose. He has given us that free choice. He provided Jesus. He gave everyone the opportunity and has said, here's my son. Here's what I'm willing to do for you because I'm a gracious, freely given And merciful, willing to forgive, God, I am going to give my son as a ransom for the payment that you could never pay as a sinful human being. So that if you choose, you do not have to live in your sin anymore, but simply believe in Jesus, and you are no longer a slave to sin, as as Paul talks about all throughout this book. Right? God would not
1: want anyone to perish. Somebody knows for that one, but also for John three sixteen the whole world so his picture of saying these are all the options for people mm-hmm. you see god working in different ways It's not that he's eliminating anyone that's not that's not his heart. but mm-hmm. people end up making that
3: he's a
2: very well choice yeah but it's also that some people just think that god is dear what they can call him for
0: favor sure. at any
2: time yeah.
0: God's my buddy. God's my genie in a bottle. God's my my servant. Yeah. People treat him that way. Of course. Yeah. Ultimately, we could go back to the fact and say all of us deserve that condemnation. All of us deserve that punishment and that judgment. But it's only because of God's love and the work of Jesus Christ that God has shown us mercy. It's only through that that we are able to be forgiven that we are able to Escape the condemnation that we all deserve as sinners You know, even David writes about the fact that he was sinful from the time he was conceived Right not even just since he started being a bad person sometimes or did a few bad things But from the moment he was a person He was sinful because we all inherit that from Adam's nature as human beings We all have that sinful nature and are deserving of of punishment and paul's talked about that already in romans all have sinned and fallen short and so it's only rather when we want to or people who maybe are against god want to use this as an example to tear him down or to argue against him what it really does when you understand it is show how merciful he is that he has chosen you know with the israelites to kill only a portion and save a remnant for continuing on the promise and continuing on what he has offered in covenant it's the same for us the fact that he saves anyone is a demonstration of his mercy because none of us deserve it all of us by our sin nature are against god and it is still i'll admit confusing at times for me even when paul talks about certain things like this how it's god's choice and it's god's um predestination at times he talks about that god has chosen People and I can't fully wrap my mind around that all the time. What it looks like that God has chosen some and and not others, and what that actually looks like when you wrap in things like our free will, and that still wrinkles my brain a little bit. I'm not as uh, haven't been thinking about it as many years as Dr. Jim, so I still am confused by it.
3: I've been thinking about it a lot, and I'm still confused. But <laughs> I, I, I I want to I want to emphasize though that this chapter is not about whether I'm getting to heaven or going to hell. Yes. It's about whether I am blessed on earth or not blessed on earth. Mm. Because all of the examples do not refer to eternal destiny. Yes. They refer to a position of favor on earth. Mm -hmm. So Pharaoh lost his position of favor on earth because of his disobedience. Yes. And the destruction that it it, is, just jumping ahead uh, to verse 20, uh, uh, 22. 22. Choosing to show his wrath and make his power on board with great patience, the officer of his wrath prepared for destruction. Some people say, well, that destruction is hell. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh went to hell. We don't know that. No. What, what we do know is that Pharaoh's armies were beaten on the field of battle by the Lord, and yes. was followed up by the Red Sea. And that's the destruction that he's talking about. He's not talking about eternal destiny, he's talking about an historical event. A pharaoh losing the mightiest man in the world losing mm-hmm. his army. Yeah. Uh, so there's a there's a there's a difference uh, in the emphasis here. It's a, it's it's history that he's talking about, not eternal destiny. Mm-hmm. But then, like, said,
2: like a novel, you could go back it's because <laughs> who knows? Maybe Pharaoh after this happened could have accepted God as the savior.
0: Yeah, it's. uh, an interesting concept to think about for sure. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. There's
1: uh, a lot it doesn't
0: say. <laughs> so it. That. And that's why we want to focus on what it does say, right? As Jim is pointing out here, yes. Yes, there's a, a quote I came across that I, I thought was kind of comical, but I really liked as well. It said, the reconciliation of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is beyond our power. The Bible states and emphasizes both and then leaves them. We shall be wise if we do the same, he said. Because sometimes we just don't, I don't get it. I don't get how I can be somehow chosen or predestined by God and yet also know that it was my, I had a responsibility to believe in Christ and what that looks like. And so I like what this, this author said. Was, you know, the Bible states it, emphasizes it, and then moves on. Maybe we should just do the same as well. And I think that's important here. Uh, as we look at this, this text.
3: I'm, going to, I'm just going to say again, so we mentioned this last week, nowhere in the Bible does it say we're pre- we predestined to get saved. Mm-hmm. It says we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So once a person is a Christian, a destiny is set. There, there's no sense in which before I'm a Christian that God sets my destiny. Uh, otherwise the gospel would not be whosoever will may come the gospel will be find out if you're on the right side of god's choice yeah
0: (laughs) exactly well and i think what paul is really trying to prove here is again too that again be it earthly position be it salvation be it anything that we're talking about here god is god and we are not as he says going on into verse 20 now on the contrary Who are you, you foolish person? It's nice that he's arguing against an imaginary opponent here. He can call them whatever he wants. Who are you, you foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does the potter not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience, objects of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Again, who do we think we are? (laughs) Who do you think you are to challenge God's authority? If God chose to kill everyone, if God chose to raise everyone up if God chose to show mercy to some and not to others um, I think of the the parable that Jesus tells about the, the workers in the field and how some start first thing in the morning and they're offered a day's wages and then some start a little bit later in the morning and they're offered a day's wages and some are hired in the middle of the afternoon near the end of the work day and they're also offered a day's wages and the people, some of them the ones who've been working all day long for the same amount of money get upset And say, what is this? Like, they're making the same amount as us. They're working half as hard. Well, isn't it up to the person? You agreed to this. You agreed to work for a day's wage. Is it not up to God to decide whom he gives what to? Is it not up to, in that case, the boss to decide how much he gives to whoever? It's, again, not up to us. And I love that Paul uses the example of clay here. Because... Not only is it a good illustration in terms of its moldability and its use but i don't know it seems like a little bit like it shows who we really are right like we want to think of ourselves so often as being so powerful and so great and so good and and paul's like man we're lumps of clay and it's messy like if you've ever seen someone work with clay and and a potter's wheel like it's messy and it's gross and muddy and yeah eventually a piece of pottery can be beautiful but when it starts out i mean it's gross it's a lump of mud and they've got to form it and work it and get it shaped the right way and then eventually it has to go through the fires to be, uh, to be baked and then painted and decorated and it's a lot of work. But it's up to the potter to do what they want with it, whether they want to make something, as he says here, um, made for honorable use, so something ceremonial, or something just for general use. It's up to the person making the piece of pottery to decide what they want to do with it and the, the same is true of, of our lives is that God can do with our lives what he wants to do. And we wanna think that we're in control or think that we get to choose um, everything that we um, we want. And I think there is an aspect there of of free will that God has allowed us in some aspect to to choose which direction we wanna go and how well we wanna pursue. But we gotta remember who we are and remember that although we are very valuable to God and loved by God and made in God's image, he is the potter. (laughs) And he is God, and we are not. And I think that's a very important reminder. Whether you look at someone like the people of promise through Abraham's line, or you look at someone like Pharaoh, who is a king among kings, who is an incredibly, as you said, Jim, famous person, the most powerful in the land, he's also clay in God's hands uh, to be formed as God sees fit. We don't get a right to judge our judge one commentator I read said, men are not lost because they are hardened. They're hardened because they're lost. They're lost because they're sinners. Just this reminder that, again, at the end of the day, we are sinful people. And it's God's mercy that allows us to be saved. And then it's also God's mercy, as Jim was pointing out too, that once we are saved, we have an opportunity to follow God and to be made more into the image of Christ. That is God's mercy that allows that. <clears throat> just look at my notes here really quick. Uh, let's continue. Any any other questions or comments on that before we before we do?
1: I find it interesting, maybe some of you have had a chance to do pottery. And while you're working with the clay, before you even mold it into an object, you have not It'll crack. Can explode.
0: Yeah, yeah. A lot of work that needs to be done. I think it's a Paul is a, a great use of uh, has a great illustrative mind and uses some great analogies here that people would have understood or been able to relate to um, at the time. Maybe us not as much all the times now, 2,000 years later. But that's where uh, it's helpful to look back at at history and, and understand. Um, how people would have understood these these illustrations the pre-tupperware days, the, 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 the days yeah. Day.
3: yeah
0: yeah I mean and you can see the same the same is true of think you know glass if it's heated and then cooled too quickly can explode and shatter and um, you know again it's important that we see here that we are worked through and over by God and anything that we accomplished. No one would look at a piece of fine pottery and say, man, that clay, it did a real great job turning into that vase. Oh, it was good good job for that clay for stepping up and doing something great. No, it's the potter who makes the clay. And while there is again an aspect here of when it comes to our sanctification and our growth in Christ likeness, that we do have a role to play. We get to choose if we wish to follow Jesus and with how much gusto and how much effort we're gonna put into it. But at the end of the day, the glory goes to God. We are formed more into the likeness of Christ for God's glory, not for our own glory. Um, And I think that's a really important uh, distinction. Let's continue. Uh, I paused in the middle of a sentence, I realize now. So starting at verse 23. um, And he did so um, to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Namely, us whom he also called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in, that, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, <coughs> pardon me, sorry, uh, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And here it connects back to what Rose was bringing up at the beginning, this this discussion of sonship and adoption. Um, what What do you think Paul is getting at when he refers to this passage in Hosea? Seems like he's quoting Old Testament a lot around here. But what is he getting at with this passage from Hosea?
2: Is doing and they believe, they, believe, they believe by faith. Um, so he said, Okay, if the people from this is not believing, I will go to the others. That's right.
0: mm-hmm. Anything else? Yeah, I think it's a really good point, Rose. I think we remember and we understand that. Israel is ultimately still God's people, Israel are God's people, and yet through this mystery as Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, others have been grafted in as well, and Gentiles have an opportunity to be grafted in, to be called people of God, to be called sons and daughters of the Most High, of the living God, in something that does not discount the promise that was made to Israel. (laughs) does not remove the promises that were made to Israel, and they will still come to fruition. But in the meantime, God has provided a way that others, that any who believe, can be grafted in, that could be considered his people. And this is something that is prophesied about, you know, in the book of Hosea. Years and years and years and years before, it is prophesied that this will come to fruition, that those who were called not his people could be called his people. Um, And again, that doesn't remove the original bearers of the title from it, but it allows others to be brought in and grafted in as well. That, and that's why we say amen, that we are here today because of that promise, because we have been grafted in, um, that God has shown mercy to those beyond the original covenant people and has shown blessing to us through the work of Jesus Christ, um, not just for Israel but for others all throughout the world, as was pointed out earlier, as well.
3: So this whole pattern of uh, Romans chapter 9, God's working in in history, uh, he starts out by saying, um, I've chosen uh, Isaac, I've chosen Jacob over Esau, uh, I've chosen Israel and not Pharaoh. Israel is blessed, Pharaoh's is not now he turns and he says, Israel is the one who is now down, yeah. and the Gentiles are up. So once again it's a sovereign God working in history to bless those that he blesses.
0: And again up to his his choice. It's it's up to God to do what he will do, because his people did not keep to the covenant. And praise be to God that we are not held to that that standard of accountability that because we know it's a covenant that could not be kept in many cases, right? It's a law that could not be uh, could not bring freedom c- could not bring salvation because it was uh, unattainable. What a mercy that God has allowed whether again people from Israel or people from the Gentile peoples to, to believe and be grafted in. Verse uh, Verse 27 Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel may be like the sands of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, if the Lord of armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. It's pointing to the same mercy that Paul is building on here. Again, it's because... Of god's mercy he decided to save a remnant he did not and yet he could have treated israel like sodom and gomorrah completely wiping them off the face of the planet and yet he didn't he saved a remnant and another remnant and then the people expanded and then they were judged again and another remnant was saved and they were exiled and then a remnant returned and on and on and on it goes and the same is true you could say about now as paul is writing to the people at this time There is a remnant of Israel that has believed, that has been, you know, that's who Paul goes to first, right? As we walk through the book of Acts, every time he goes to a new town, he was going to the synagogues first. Paul himself could be argued as part of that remnant. He is a believer who is Jewish. He is part of God's people, and now he's bringing in others into the fold as well, and that remnant is expanding. And one day, God's people, some way in the future will join as well um, and be brought to his um brought to the, the 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 gate of his kingdom uh in that moment of judgment and here we have this picture of again anytime god wanted to he could have wiped them from the face of the earth and yet he allowed the remnant to remain and allowed them to rebuild and it's not so different than the picture we have of his big judgment in genesis with noah Right, Noah and his family were a remnant as well. The people were evil. They were horrible. They were not what God wanted. And so he saved a remnant and allowed people to be repopulated through them, showing his mercy. Uh, let's finish off because we have just a few more minutes left. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness but the righteousness that is by faith. However, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though they could by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as written, As is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. What's Paul getting at here in these last few verses? notice anything well in 30 Paul says what shall we say then which is a favorite phrase of his that usually indicates either concluding an argument or starting a new one and here we see he's kind of concluding this point that he's been building up to um, through the entire chapter and again what it comes down to is how are Gentiles brought in faith how was Israel saved well they thought so and that's the problem right is again it's this contrast that Paul's been building all through this entire letter faith versus works what brings you into the fold of God is it your faith or your works and he says here Gentiles they did not even pursue righteousness they didn't know what they were trying to do now doesn't mean that there were no gentiles who were pretty good no of course not but it means they didn't have the law and were not therefore pursuing the law and so they were not pursuing that which god had said was righteous and yet somehow without even pursuing it it's almost like the picture he gives here is like someone almost like wandering into eternity (laughs) or almost wandering into to glory on earth because they weren't even looking for it and yet when presented with the gospel they responded with faith and it's the same with each and every one of us some of us have eagerly pursued faith in our lives some of us have wrestled with it and wondered what it looks like to, to find God and others of us have been graciously you know raised in families where it's introduced to us and we're not even really looking for it it just brought it to us and yet it all comes down to that decision point of faith and he contrasts that with the people of Israel who said they did pursue righteousness they pursued a law of righteousness And they thought it could be done by works. And yet, it was faith that was required of them and will be required of them also. As Paul has been pointing out all throughout this letter, it's that contrast, faith versus works. Now, we don't want to go to the extreme of saying that works aren't important. But again, it's what is required to be declared as righteous. Is it our works or is it our faith? Paul has made very clear it's our faith. The two
3: do not really stand so much in opposition to exactly it's which one comes first if faith comes first then works done in faith are acceptable If yes. works comes first then it's no good and what's the point <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: and then again he he ends here with this this interesting illustration um, from scripture of behold I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. fence And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Which is this picture of that even from the prophetic times, it was known that Christ would be a stumbling point to many in Israel. That rather than being the cornerstone as he was intended to be, the most important rock of foundation that all else is built upon, for many he would be a stumbling point. And I don't think, now while Paul is specifically talking about Israel here, I think the same thing can be said today, that many people who have an issue with Christianity or do not want to accept the premise of faith, we would say that Christ is also, for many of them, their stumbling stone as well, that they don't like the idea of free grace, they don't like the idea of, I can believe and somehow I'm saved. They don't like the idea of Jesus and what he calls obedient followers to do. There's something about the Christian gospel that while we who have believed it would look at it and say, this is great news, the best news, because we can't accomplish anything, those who have not believed look at it as a stumbling point and say, there's something about that that I just can't buy into. And unfortunately, it's the same thing that stops many now and has stopped people for generations. Is that, And it's because of the fact that that stone is also... The cornerstone is the thing that we must believe in. When it comes to Christianity, it's not that you can earn yourself there, that you can do enough works or keep the law or earn that righteousness. But Jesus is either in your life going to be the cornerstone of your faith or a stumbling block. You either believe in him or you do not. And here Paul is really clearly putting it in that kind of binary way. Do you believe in him or do you not? Do you have faith or do you not? Because one leads to glory and the other does not. One leads to righteousness in God's eyes and the other does not. And he's putting that question before his readers and explaining why that has been such an important issue throughout the generations up to this point and why it it will continue to be an issue for so many people moving forward. So what do we do as we come to the end of Romans chapter 9 with this text as Jim has said it's the demonstration of how we live and how we um, sorry I lost the word I was looking for there but how we live in light of God's mercy how it, we choose to respond to that mercy and how that can lead to uh, differing levels of I guess you could call it glory um, on here on earth What is the response as we come to the end of chapter 9? For the reader, the hearer, the follower of Christ in the midst of this. How do we walk away from here changed? How do we walk away from here uh, inspired by this chapter? To me. Yeah, I'm definitely struck with that humility too, Alice. The the reminder here in this chapter that without God we are nothing. (laughs) That but by the grace of God, but by his mercy, I am a lump of clay that will only ever be a lump of clay.
3: (laughs) The word remnant to me, there's two ways to think about it. One, the remnant is a glorious thing because uh, God has shown mercy in saving the remnant. Uh, but when I was a kid, my mom used to shop at the remnant store. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the what's left over? Yes,
3: the what's left over. And, and so what Israel gave to God was the leftovers. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sadness in the, the remnant. That, that that's all God got out of that whole nation. All he got was few.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and, and so for me, I don't want to be a remnant. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: I don't want to give God the leftovers. I don't want to come and say, God, this is the leftovers of my life. Here, this is my offering to you. I want to be all in for God Mm so that all of me is uh, is saved and all of me is profitable for God.
0: And what a contrast, too, because I think that, that same mentality applies when it comes to the trying to earn your righteousness through works as well as... What did they bring? Well, they tried, some of them. Some of them tried to do their best, but their best wasn't good enough because they still weren't accomplishing. And in contrast to that, we have the, you know, as we talked about last Sunday uh, in the main service, we can continue to strive and try and do things in our own strength, or we can rest in the presence of Christ that we've been invited to, that God has invited us to say, I believe, and that is good enough. Versus, I'm going to work as hard as I can and still never be close to good enough because I'm not reaching that um, that level that's required by the law. But instead, belief is what grasps me in. Well, I think we'll pause there for today. It's uh, almost time for service. Um, Jim, would you close us in prayer this morning?